What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Stocks are surging again today, and there's a whole lot to get to here on The Exchange. We're still waiting for the outcome of the presidential election. Just got some updates from Nevada, but it, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and North Carolina all still in play. We do expect some more updates this hour. The markets, though, are loving what they know about the outcome thus far. Like Scott just said, the Dow's up more than 500 points right now. All the major averages seeing pretty strong gains, and they're on pace for their biggest weekly gains since April. These are today's numbers on your screen right there. Dow's up 532. Nasdaq's up another 272. That's 2.3%. S&P's up 2%. Even the Russell Small Caps, which lagged yesterday, rebounding up 2.7% today. Financial's a big part of that. Now, all this is also coming despite record daily COVID cases in the U.S. And we have a Fed meeting just an hour away. Let's dive a little deeper on this rally now with Bob Bassani. Bob. And Kelly, we have a freight train of a rally going here. The S&P 500 is up 7, almost 8% this week. We're off our highs, uh, but we are approaching those old historic highs. 35.80 was the old historic high for the S&P. That was back on September 2nd. Look here, we're only 60 points. That's less than 2% away from that historic high. Hard to believe considering all the worries that are out there. This is a fairly broad rally. Look at the sectors. Uh, technology doing really well. That's a big growth area. But so are cyclical sectors like uh, industrial stocks and bank stocks also on the upside. Uh, consumer staples, healthcare, more defensive stocks up, but not nearly as much. Why are we getting this rally? Will you pick your reasons? The most important one, of course, was no major tax hikes on the horizon, particularly for corporate or capital gains tax. That's number one. But if you look at elsewhere, there's less regulation of tech and healthcare involved. And of course, we're talking about a meeting today of the central banks here, the Federal Reserve. They may increase their QE. We don't know about the Fed, but Bank of England has already. Uh, and there's some talk that the ECB might as well. And, of course, we've got vaccine data coming. So there's a lot of positive uh, news out there. I think the most important thing is that whole uh, idea that maybe we'll get a little more stimulus coming sooner rather than later from Mr. McConnell over in the Senate, a big factor as well. New highs for a lot of tech stocks. Qualcomm had great numbers overall, but we see semiconductors like Lamb Research, KLA uh, on the upside, and Alphabet, of course, had terrific earnings earlier. Industrials and materials, these cyclical stocks uh, are doing really well. We've had great earnings from uh, materials companies like Lindy reporting uh, today, great numbers overall. Uh, new highs for Parker Hannafin as well. So this, I want to emphasize the broadness of the rally here. It's not just growth stocks. We're getting industrials, cyclicals moving, and even those defensive names, they're not as up as much. But when you get six to one advancing to declining stocks uh, almost for the week, that's a pretty broad rally. Guys, back to you. Incredible. Parker Hannafin up 10%. Bob, thank you for bringing that to us. Bob Bassani. Let's get the very latest in the presidential election. We're awaiting results from those six final states. Just getting more votes tallied in Nevada. Eamon Jabbers joins us now with the details. Eamon? 
Yeah, Kelly, first let's start with the big board and look at the race to 270 overall. This has been stalled since the last states were called, uh, so we've got a similar picture to what we've had before if you look at the na nation overall. Joe Biden just 17 votes away in the Electoral College uh, from taking the presidency of the United States, but where is he going to find those 17 votes? You look at the six states that have still not been called, uh, one, two, three, four, five states that have not been called. Uh, you're looking at uh, ultimately some opportunities for Biden. He has multiple channels to get through. The president really needs to run the table on just about everything that's out there. We've been getting some new data from Nevada uh, as we uh, go through the morning here. They've been blurping out uh, little bits of data. Here's the latest number, 49.4 for Biden, 48.5 uh, for Trump. That's what they're saying. 88% of the vote uh, is telling them right now. So a, a relatively tightening picture. Uh, Biden had a, a lead over 12,000 earlier today. That's now under 12. Uh, we'll see where we go throughout the day as those blurps of data uh, continue to come up from that state. Uh, Arizona, a similar picture there uh, as we rotate through the country. Biden, 50.5. Trump, 48.1. A difference of just over 68,000 votes in the state of Arizona with 86% of the vote in. Then Pennsylvania. This one, 20 electoral college votes. If Joe Biden were to win in Pennsylvania, he is the next president of the United States. But look at this. Donald Trump has the lead, 50.3 to 48.5. The big question there is how many votes are left in the city of Philadelphia that still have to be counted? Because that's expected to be heavily Joe Biden. Is there enough margin there uh, for Joe Biden to take the state of Pennsylvania and to become the 46th president of the United States? We're going to have to wait uh, and see for that. Meanwhile, the president is out with a statement uh, just within the short past uh, little while. He says, if you count the legal votes, I easily win the election. If you count the illegal and late votes, they can steal the election from us. Now, uh, there's no allegation out there that there are illegal votes, that there's any fraud in this, other than from the President of the United States himself. No evidence that we have seen that there's fraudulent activity anywhere in the country so far. But the President is making the argument here uh, that there is some kind of fraud out there somewhere that's disadvantaging him. Uh, he had tweeted earlier in the day, stop the vote uh, count, stop the count, uh, is what the tweet said. Uh, Aides have since then been trying to spin that and parse it and walk it back a little bit and say what the president's talking about is stopping any votes that came in illegally after the fact in states where that vote was not allowed, uh, despite the fact that there's no evidence of that. The president tweeting stop the count, though, puts him in a position where he's calling for states that are counting votes for the first time to actually stop that process. That's what he called for. Uh, and aides have been trying to explain that, Kelly, for the better part of the afternoon now. I know. He's not known for his finesse, but I'm sure they're used to it. Uh, we appreciate the updates. We look forward to maybe hearing more this hour. For now, Eamon, thank you very much. Let's head straight to one of the states we were just talking about where the race is too close to call. Contessa Brewer is live in Alma, Georgia. Contessa, what's the latest there? Hi, Kelly. Nice to see you. Yeah, this is uh, Bacon County, which, like most other rural counties in Georgia, their ballots are entirely counted. 86% of the people who voted here voted for Trump. As the absentee ballots in other bigger metro counties have been processed, Trump's lead is shrinking. Say at midnight Wednesday night, he led by 372,000 votes. And then 24 hours later, he led by 23,000 votes as the Democratic dominated metro area saw these ballots coming in and being counted. Okay, so now it stands at, let's, let's show you where the razor thin margins are as we speak right now in uh, Georgia. And there you're seeing the live shot of Fulton County processing those ballots. 
less than 13,500. Okay, so here they are in Fulton County. We understand they expect to have totals coming out of Fulton County later today. They said just before 11 a.m. that there were about 11,200 still to go there. Um, but we heard then from Fulton County saying they had about 4,800 to go. A total of 60,000 votes statewide, the, according to the Secretary of State, have been being processed today and outstanding. We're expecting another update at 3 p.m. from the Secretary of State. And as it stands, three-tenths of a percent separating Trump and Biden. Okay, so we're waiting on these results in these bigger metro regions, Atlanta, Savannah, where Biden has the advantage. Meanwhile, big update here, a judge dismissed a lawsuit from President Trump and the Georgia Republican Party accusing Chatham County, home of Savannah, of improperly counting absentee ballots received after the state's deadline. So, so that's been tossed. In Georgia, Kelly, if the margin is less than half a percent, which right now it is, the candidates can demand a recount. Yep, and that's just the presidential battle. We're going to turn and talk about the Senate races there now, Contessa. Thank you very much. Let's take a quick pause on the market's euphoria over the divided government it thinks we're getting in order to see whether that will, in fact, turn out to be the case. Republican control of the Senate is not yet guaranteed. For more now, I'm joined by Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan, there's some interesting signals in the market today as well. The solar yeah. stocks are flying. Caterpillar, which was down big yesterday on no blue wave, is up 6% right now. Uh, what's going on with these Senate races? How close is it? And could the Democrats end up in control of that part of that chamber? Yeah, well, first, Kelly, thank you for having me on. Uh, you know, it's exciting. And the way we're counting ballots now is very different than before with a lot of mail-in voting. So that creates some confusion. Yesterday, uh, the Republicans had a great day in the Senate. Uh, even if they don't end up with control, they really did much better than they anticipated. And now that we're getting the final votes, there's some questions about whether the Democrats can get 50 votes or not. The central question here is Senator Perdue's race in Georgia. Senator Perdue was comfortably over 50 percent yesterday. But as more and more votes come in from Atlanta and the Atlanta suburbs, that margin is being reduced just as it's being reduced for the president, yep. as we just what we heard from Contesta. And so if Senator Perdue ends up below 50 percent of the vote, we will not we, we will have what's called a, a a runoff election on January 5th. And as you know, Georgia already has another runoff election on January 5th for the other Senate seat there. The Democrats are likely going to have 48 votes when everything gets counted. And then they'll have the chance to win two seats in January. Wow. So that's why you see the market starting to reprice here. Maybe a little bit of better odds. I think there's some uh, gaming going on about what's happening in the North Carolina Senate seat as well. I think that's less likely to go Democrat right now. I think Senator Tillis has a little bit of a cushion uh, given the number of outstanding ballots that are there and uh, and what they what Cal Cunningham would need to do to beat him. So, you know, there's just a lot of yeah. uncertainty here due to the way that we're counting the ballots now. And the market has to sort itself out and kind of reprice as this changes from day to day. So, Dan, here's what's so interesting about everything that you're describing. This it's not yet, you know, locked up for the Republicans to be in control of the Senate. And yet the market today with, you know, it's it's looking at the sectors a little bit differently. But we're still seeing the same kind of rally that we saw yesterday on 
what we can call the purple Congress, uh, to use John Jerrion's term. Yep. So is, is the view that, look, the technical majority in the Senate is not going to matter, whether it's, you know, 51 one way or 51 the other, you more or less have the same kind of outcome. You know, how important is it which party is in control of that? Because listen, if it goes the Democrats way and now they have the Senate and the White House, that would seem to be a very different narrative than the one we've been hearing for the past 24 hours. Yeah, so Kelly, my colleague, Chris Verone, who's our technical analyst, likes to say that elections don't break trends in the stock market generally. And if the trend was good going in, then the trend is probably going to be good going out. I think that's playing out in real time for us. Everybody was excited about a blue wave. Stocks went up. The blue wave didn't happen. Then they were excited about the divided government. Maybe it's the fact that we're probably going to get a vaccine. And maybe it's the fact that we're going to get stimulus regardless of who is in control of Congress. And those are more important factors than which party is controlling the Senate, where you see the real, where you see the real dynamics play of this election. And I've always said this, elections are about sectors. Healthcare has a lot at stake. And so if there's a Republican Senate, healthcare is going to do really good. If there's a 50-50 Senate with the Democrats in control, healthcare is going to do okay, because there's not enough to really go do the public option or serious drug pricing plan that could materially hurt them. But if you had 53 or 54, 55 Democrats, you could start to see industries getting restructured in that perspective, uh, energy and healthcare, And that's off the table. We're really having a debate about whether it's going to be 50, 49 or 48 Democratic senators in this situation. Yeah, that makes sense. And Dan, I want to sneak you one final one before we have to go on the presidential race. Mm -hmm. You know, right now it looks like Biden is kind of closing in. I mean, he's he's on the cusp of that electoral count. You know, you throw in Nevada, you throw in another state. You know, I, I understand all that. But what if those states go red enough that President Trump can still pull this off? And no one seems to be discussing this possibility, save for a few different strategists that I follow. How likely is it that you think President Trump could still end up reelected right here? Well, he needs a royal flush, but it's not a zero percent probability. He needs to lock up Georgia. He needs to lock up Arizona. Uh, he, if he locks up Nevada, that's a, a bonus for him. Uh, but I would really say that he's got to secure Arizona and Georgia and obviously North Carolina next week when they release their numbers before he can even have the fight over Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is looking to be more of a legal and public relations fight than one that's going to be on the votes itself. Here's what worries me, right? There's a lot of of euphoria in the market right now, but the Republicans are starting to believe that the election is being stolen from it. You may say that's not true. I may not believe that's true, but it doesn't matter what we believe. There is a really bad sentiment building in the Republican Party when 50,000 votes just show up out of nowhere. And there could be a good explanation for it, but somebody's got to explain why that's happening. And that's why I start to think that the longer the pinata gets out there, the more it could be hit. And I'd like to have this uh, presidential yeah. election resolved sooner rather than later, because the longer this festers, the more bad feelings that are going to come out of this. And that starts to break apart this kind of orderly transition that we've been seeing over the last couple of days. And we already know, based on what you're saying, that it could be January for the Senate. So there is some uncertainty still. Dan, thanks so much.
Thank Dan you, Clifton with Strategus Research Partners joining us today. Let's talk a little bit about the market. Stocks do continue to surge higher for now with the S&P and NASDAQ. Get this, now both within 2% of their all-time highs from early September. The Dow is close to flipping into positive territory for the year. Is all this euphoria, let's use the word again, premature? And let's put that question to our market panel today. Subhadra Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at SockGen. Brian Levitt is global market strategist at Invesco. And Julia Coronado is founder of Macro Policy Perspective. Brian, I just want to start with you kind of straight up on the stock market here. Would you trust uh, all the excitement over divided government or would you share some of the concerns that Dan just laid out? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that obviously there's uncertainty around the outcome of the election. So we'll we'll see how that ultimately plays out. But I think that the I don't even know if I call it euphoria, but the optimism around what's going on in the stock market is you're you have a picture of what has been an improving economic environment. Now that, now that may play out with some fits and starts over, over the next weeks, but ultimately 2021 should be a significantly better economic backdrop. We know the Fed is on hold indefinitely. We know there's likely some stimulus coming to this market. We know stocks are cheap to bonds. We know that financial conditions have eased meaningfully. So all of that is a great backdrop for equities, and, and that's largely going to be irrespective of the outcome of the election. Now, divided government could give a boost, um, and divided government right. paradoxically can extend this cycle, but there's good factors to this market. Julia, I want to ask you, because we're less than an hour away from the Fed decision that is barely getting mentioned today, um, what mm-hmm. prospect does that have to kind of upset the apple cart here one way or the other? I mean, there's plenty of people pointing out that no matter what happens at this point with the presidency and with the Senate, the Fed remains one of the, if not the most important players in the room. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think they're going to try to stay out of the way today. I think they're going to try to keep the noise level on monetary policy Uh, as low as possible. But I think what they're doing behind closed doors is hashing out how to put a framework around their quantitative easing, their asset purchases. Uh, They really, that's kind of the unfinished business in their forward guidance. We know they're on hold with interest rates, but they really haven't given us a sense of how they're going to structure their asset purchases in 2021 and, and going forward. And so I think they're having that debate and that discussion They'll probably want to roll that out in December once they have better clarity on the fiscal outlook. So one way or another, if we have better prospects for fiscal uh, or worse prospects for fiscal, they're going to want to put a framework for asset purchases that can expand with those prospects. So I think we're going to see them tie asset purchases to their economic objectives in a flexible way. And I think that's what they're, they're going to be discussing today. Not rolling it out today, yeah, but and, discussing it and rolling it out in December. Right, te- kind of telegraphing right. what's coming, and usually that's enough for the market. Subhadra, so, this also come in a week when rates have been swirling around. We are as high as almost 1% on election night. We're now a little north of 75 basis points. Um, if this scenario where Biden is the president and the Senate does go Democrat pans out, are we expecting to see rates march back up higher from here? Possibly. I think what happened was the reflation trade was fully priced into the bond market. And earlier on, when it became clear that it's not going to be a blue sweep, that got very quickly priced out of the market. So um, broadly speaking, I think if that scenario is back in play, then there's definitely a case to be made 
for uh, for a rise in yield. Really, the big risk and the big concern for the Fed going into today's meeting is the sharp decline in break-even uh, and inflation expectations. And what the Fed really wants with its average inflation targeting is a steady rise in inflation expectations. To the extent that the market prices out, the reflation trade and inflation expectations continue to decline. That, I think, is going to be a concern for the Fed. No, that's well said. Uh, let me circle back, Brian, and then just leave it with you. We started with the stock market. We'll end there. Um, is, is this the kind of situation where people should try to avoid uh, making real specific bets on any particular sector because there's going to be a, what seems like a lot of uncertainty in the weeks and months ahead? Well, I think a, a lot of investors were trying to avoid, at least the ones I spoke to, were very concerned about volatility this week concerns of a contested election that were going to lead to deep drawdowns in markets. So this is a reminder that investors tend to get the timing of these things wrong, and there's already a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. In my opinion, investors should be setting up for an improving economic environment as we progress through 2021, and all of that entails a move higher in rates, a steeper yield curve, more of the value-oriented cyclical parts of the markets participating more than they had been. Over time, I suspect the, the recovery gives way to a pretty modest expansion, and, and that'll take us back into an environment that we were in for a, the better part of the middle part of the 2010s. But for now, it's, it's, it's likely to be a reflation trade, and investors should be positioned accordingly. All right. Make it sound almost easy. <laughs> we know it's far from it. Subhadra Rajapa, Brian Levitt, and Julia Coronado, thank you all on a big market day. We appreciate it. Coming up, the jobs market is still healing from the spring, but the pace of healing has slowed lately. We're going to get an inside look at what trends recruiters are seeing as we await tomorrow's big jobs report. Plus, COVID cases in the U.S. hitting a new daily high, with cities like Boston imposing curfews. We've got the latest next. And take a look at the social stocks as we go. Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, all jumping today. Facebook is now up 12% just this week with another 3% gain today. We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. A dire new record in the U.S. with daily COVID cases spiking over 100,000 a day. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest on this spread. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, the number yesterday, 103,000 in the United States, passing that 100,000 new daily case milestone in this country that we've been hearing folks like Dr. Anthony Fauci warn about since the summer. Now, those prior peaks did not get that high. Uh, if you look back over the summer, we kind of peaked at 77,000 cases per day. And back in the spring peak, it was around 36,000. Of course, we were not testing as much in the spring, so it's really hard to compare. But you can just see how this is accelerating now as we get into the colder months. 
Uh, now, the seven-day average in new cases, about 89,000 per day in the United States. What we really worry about, though, of course, are hospitalizations and deaths. We now have 52,000 Americans in the hospital in the United States as of yesterday. Uh, the number of deaths reported yesterday was more than 1,000, and on the seven-day average has now ticked up to 858. So you tend to see hospitalizations rise a few weeks after cases, and deaths start to tick up a few weeks after hospitalizations. Now, where is it the worst in the country? Well, everywhere is seeing spread, but the Midwest is seeing the most infections per capita. You can see here from COVID exit strategy, those states in the red there seeing more than 500 new daily cases per million people in those states. And you're also seeing a number of states with ICU capacity under strain, Kelly, four different states from Alabama, Georgia to Mississippi and Tennessee all at more than 80% of their ICU capacity full. So that's considered constrained. Now, where do we go from here? Well, public health experts are quite worried about the trajectory right now. Carlos Del Rio from Emory warning today, we could see 200,000 new daily cases per day by Thanksgiving at the rate we're on right now. Kelly? Meg, are there any common threads between uh, areas where we're seeing these outbreaks now and the areas like the Northeast that aren't? I mean, does it just have to do with who got it, you know, worse the last time around? Are there totally different measures as it regards to mask wearing and not mask wearing? What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, some of those things could definitely apply. Attitudes toward the virus, ability to stay home, uh, wearing masks, mandates and things like that. You know, the Northeast was hit so hard. So there was a thought that areas that have seen how bad COVID can get, folks there either it, whether it's mandated by their local governments or not, will just be more cautious than areas that hadn't seen it so badly before. But we are seeing essentially every state tick up right now. So whereas the Midwest is being hit particularly hard at the moment, you know, states over here are also seeing upticks as well. So it's really a bad situation as we head into the colder months everywhere. Yeah, I just keep hoping it it stops going up, but that's hope's not a strategy. Uh, but that's all we've got. Uh, Meg, thank you. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the very latest on the COVID front for us. And as all of this rolls around, jobless claims last week, we learned this morning, came in above estimates, uh, 751,000 Americans filing first-time claims for unemployment insurance. The number is well below its late March peak, but there are still more than 7 million people receiving ongoing assistance. Joining me now with a check on the labor market's recovery as COVID cases surge again is Evan Sohn. He is chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com and co-founder of the Sohn Conference. Evan, it's great to have you back. I'm hoping you've got some good news for us, but I, I just have to imagine people are turning more cautious as this pandemic keeps spreading. Yeah, I, I, thanks again for having uh, me on, uh, Kelly. And uh, yes, uh, I agree. And the uh, Recruiter.com, Recruiter Sentiment, is 3.3 for the second month in a row. Now that's out of five. So we have uh, a well to go, but it's still above the 2.5 sentiments, which we were at in uh, April. So this is the first time in the last three months that positivity has not grown at all. Um, the average recruiter is working on 15 open roles now, which is down uh, from 16 in September, which was the high since COVID-19 started. So we're down a little bit there too. Um, in August, when we pointed out that there was 90% optimism in the manufacturing space, uh, there was a real quick uptick uh, in the manufacturing jobs. But now optimism for the manufacturing jobs is slightly below 70%, so likely the manufacturing jobs are slowing up too. So our industry bright spots were yeah. healthcare manufacturing. Sorry, go ahead, Kelly. Oh, sure. I was just going to say we, we 
the rebound in manufacturing has been one of the bright spots for the whole economy. But a lot of that, as we know, has been restocking and catching back up with demand and it's slowing now. So let's talk about healthcare and some of the other industries. I mean, where are you seeing strength and where, where else are you seeing weakness right now? Yeah, so the bright spots were healthcare and manufacturing and they're down slightly below 70%. So there's actually no industry now that's above the 70% in optimism in terms of new jobs. Um, so it's really pointing to a little bit slower, certainly in the next 30 to 60 days. Now, while this all seems a little negative, recruiters are reporting that their workloads in October are only down from 11% in October of 2019. So despite the uh, discussions around the second wave of COVID and the political uh, turmoil, only about 25% of the recruiters feel that COVID's having a great effect on their recruiting activities. But there's actually something really interesting that we started to track. Remote work actually beat out compensation as the top draw for candidates, according to the recruiters. So huh. 35% said that remote work was a higher priority to 31% of compensation. So if we're going to focus on remote workers, we're going to see that the industries that support, support the remote workers are actually going to recover faster from a jobs perspective. And we're seeing that. Right? We all hear about the Silicon Valley companies going all remote. We're seeing that they're talking about, gee, I don't need to hire an engineer from uh, Silicon Valley. I can hire an engineer in Alabama or Montana and working fully remotely. And we're actually seeing now uh, that, so let's go back, healthcare manufacturing, which are really almost all local in-person jobs, while they're optimistic in terms of job openings, actually filling those jobs has been slower because they're not aligning with the candidate's preference for remote work. Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, it's almost like having some certainty on the pandemic sticking around is accelerating all of these trends. But still, I hear what you're telling us. And I, I wonder if tomorrow's jobs report is going to be a bit of a wet blanket, not that hopes are that high for it, but just again, a reminder that uh, the sharp recovery that we saw this year is, is slowing. Uh, Evan, thanks for joining us with all that information. Evan, so we really appreciate it. Coming up, the hotel industry has been slammed by the pandemic and now faces a rising case count into the winter. How will they cope? We'll ask the CEO of Choice Hotels next with a stock higher today on the back of its earnings. Plus, is Fed Chair Powell's job in jeopardy no matter who takes the White House? We'll take a look at that. And despite COVID concerns, retail is on the move today. And some of the best names include Wayfair, Capri Holdings, Macy's and Mattel, all seeing nice gains of four to almost 10 percent in Capri's case. We're back in a couple. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to some breaking news on the presidential race, this time regarding the vote count in Michigan. Eamon Jabber's with us. Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, a couple of court-related issues to bring you up to speed on. One is uh, this lawsuit in Michigan now. The Trump campaign is losing a lawsuit to seek to halt vote counting in Michigan. That's according to an oral order from a state court judge there. So the Trump campaign was hoping to stop the vote counting in the state of Michigan. Uh, that's not going to happen, according to that state court judge. We'll see if there's an appeal there. But you see Michigan with 16 electoral votes. The projected winner by NBC News is 50.6 percent. Uh, Joe Biden, 47.8 percent. Donald Trump there. So that comes on the heels of a Georgia lawsuit that was dismissed earlier in the day. A state court judge in Georgia dismissed a lawsuit that was filed Wednesday by the Trump campaign uh, and the Georgia Republican Party. What they were claiming in that lawsuit, Kelly, was that the late arriving mail ballots were being mixed in with ballots that arrived over time. The lawsuit included a claim from an observer who, who thought they saw something there. Uh, what happened in Georgia was the judge says there's no evidence that the ballots seen by the observer were improper. So uh, the Trump campaign losing a court battle in Michigan, losing another court battle in Georgia. And as that happens, we do have a little bit of additional vote in the state of Georgia. If we can call up uh, the state there, you see now a 13,000 vote difference between the two men and Donald Trump's lead is narrowing in the state of Georgia. 49.5% for Trump, 49.2% for Joe Biden. Um, and we're going to watch this one carefully. Georgia has only 16 electoral college votes, so it's not enough to make the difference here. Because remember, Biden needs 17 to get to 270. So Georgia on its own doesn't get Biden over the top. But it would be a remarkable political upset because Georgia has been a red state for so very long. Uh, the fact that Biden is, is making uh, a late run at Georgia is fascinating in terms of its political dynamics. And mixed with one uh, other state, that could be enough to put Biden over the top here. So we're going to watch that one very, very carefully, as is the rest of the country, Kelly. Yep. So like you see, you laid it out perfectly, Eamon. Thank you so much. Eamon Javers with all the latest at this hour. Let's turn to markets, see that how they're reacting, taking it largely in stride. The Dow was up 647 at the high, but we've uh, basically been keeping on to this 500 plus point gain. We're up 546 right now, 2%. It's pretty much another 2% for all the major averages. The uh, NASDAQ is about 2.4%. And in terms of the sectors, they're all green. Materials, industrials, and financials are your leaders there. Materials are up 4.5% today. And that's interesting. We were speaking about the Senate earlier this hour and the chance that it could still possibly go Democratic based on some of the runoff seats in Georgia. And you see names like Caterpillar rebounding 6% today. The financials doing well. Also, remember, they got crushed yesterday on low rates. Citizens Financial up about 9%. And all the FANG names, they're also solidly higher. Amazon and Netflix, your biggest gainers there. And Amazon is now up 10% this week. It's up about 3% today. And shares of Qualcomm, they are a standout after soaring on better than expected earnings and an upbeat forecast. The results, uh, which have Qualcomm up 13%, also lifting LAM and applied materials. And take a look at the payment stocks. Square, PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard are higher. Square is also having a huge week, now uh, tallying up a 13% gain. PayPal is up 4% today. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. France has reported a new all-time high for the number of new virus cases, with the number of confirmed cases up by 58,000 over the last 24 hours alone. As that country continues its new lockdown measures, France's health minister says the days and weeks to come will be, quote, difficult. A new study by the CDC suggests that working remotely has helped reduce the spread of COVID-19. 
The report showed people who had been working in an office setting prior to getting sick were almost twice as likely to test positive than those who worked from home. Wisconsin's Governor Tony Evers delivered a radio address today encouraging Wisconsinites to stay home and take every precaution to protect the health and safety of their communities. The Wisconsin Supreme Court declined to consider reinstating his coronavirus restrictions, limiting the size of public gatherings. And take a look at that. Volkswagen announced that its Bentley brand luxury cars will include only plug-in hybrids and electric cars by 2026, and they'll be fully electric by the year 2030. The company's launch for next year will include two plug-in hybrids. Get those checkbooks out. That's the news update this hour. Kel, back to you. Sue, thank you very much, Sue Herrera. Coming up here on The Exchange, 401k investors have been making lots of moves in their retirement accounts this week. We'll tell you why and where the money is flowing. Plus, take a look at shares of GM today. Speaking of cars, the stock is higher after reporting a strong quarter thanks to its profitable trucks and SUVs in North America. Shares up about 5%, but they are up 150% from their $14 low this year. They're trading at 35 and now almost $37 today. And GM says it plans to reinstate its dividend in the middle of next year. We're back with much more on today's market rally after this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. Take a look at shares of Choice Hotels, parent company of Comfort Inn and Suites, Quality and among others. They're up about 3% today. The company missed on its earnings but beat on revenue and says there was improvement in domestic travel in the third quarter. Now, Choice didn't issue new guidance, and it comes, of course, as the U.S. is reporting a daily record number of COVID cases. Joining me now is Choice Hotels CEO Pat Patius. Pat, it's great to have you back, and we should again point out how much better your stock has held up this year relative to a lot of your peers in the hotel industry. But what are you bracing for as we head into winter and COVID isn't going anywhere? Yeah, thanks again, Kelly, for having me. You know, if you if I remember the last time we I was on with you back in May, um, you know, our industry and our company was just sort of understanding what was happening with the uh, with the COVID crisis. In the third quarter, our revenue per available room was down about 29%. Um, the rest of the industry as a whole is actually down about 20% worse at 49%. Um, the reason our brands are outperforming um, is because of that mid-scale and leisure travel focus that we've always had. Um, you know, with the cases rising now that we're seeing, um, we actually saw this before back in July and August, we saw cases rise, um, but we didn't see that correlate with, with travel volume starting to decline. It has been building month over month since April. Um, and we just looked at our October numbers, which are down only 25% relative to the 28% uh, decline we saw in the second, the third quarter. So month over month, we are continuing to see an improvement um, and that travel volume is beginning to grow. I think a lot of that is because consumers are becoming more comfortable with the idea of travel and they know they can do it in a safe way. Yeah. So long as they avoid large gatherings, they wear their masks um, and they follow the protocols that we have in, uh, in our hotels. Well, and again, it's kind of a as a bellwether for the whole economy. If we can keep going somehow, even as this is spreading, is a hopeful sign. I know you're still looking, though, for aid from Congress. Is that right? And how does the outcome of this election affect those odds? Yeah, we've been advocating really since the stimulus uh, expired at the end of July um, for consumers. And the PPP program expired in early August for a second draw for the PPP program. 
there's still money in that program that was never um, utilized. Um, we know there's bipartisan support for help for small business. All of our hotels are owned by franchisees. 90% of them qualify as small businesses. So we're advocating for that. We're advocating for a streamlining of loan forgiveness for the PPP program for loans under 150,000. Um, and finally, we're advocating for liability protection for those hotels that are following the safety protocols. Um, they should be protected against, um, against frivolous lawsuits. I'm hopeful with the uh, election now behind us. I know there's still a lot of uncertainty as to how it's going to turn out, but that was what we've been hearing as an industry was wait till we get to the other side, that there will be some stimulus right. in a lame duck session, and we're going to continue to push for that. And maybe you'll get it one way or the other at this point. Uh, Pat, thanks for joining us and for updating us on the business, especially those October trends. We're all counting on this information to get a sense of what the whole economy is doing. So thank you very much. Thanks, Kelly. Pat Patius is CEO of Choice Hotels. We are less than 20 minutes away from the Fed rate decision and a news conference by Fed Chair Jerome Powell. The key language to listen for and why Powell's job could be in jeopardy no matter who wins the election. That's next. As we go, the airline stocks are soaring today despite a 5% drop in TSA passenger numbers from last week, similar to the hotels discussion we were just having. A look at Delta, JetBlue and the others up 5%. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. We're just minutes away from the Fed's latest policy decision. And despite votes still being counted in some crucial swing states, investors appear to be banking on a divided government with Joe Biden in the White House and Republicans perhaps maintaining control of the Senate. Now, if that scenario plays out, what does it mean for stimulus and the recovery and how will the Fed factor in? Joining me now is Greg Epp. He's the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Greg, there's there's a lot of substantive stuff to get to in that, but I, I just want to ask you the, uh, I don't know, the kind of intriguing personnel question. Do you think Powell's job is in jeopardy one way or the other here? It's very hard to tell, Kelly. I mean, you can make a story one way or the other. If Trump uh, hangs on, actually is reelected, you know, I think that there was a lot of friction between the two of them. And you could imagine that when Jay Powell's job comes up for renewal in 2022, uh, Trump might be looking for a loyalist. On the other hand, it's hard to see what other alternative policy some other chairman could do that's as friendly as the current chairman's. The same is true if Joe Biden ends up being the president. What different policy would the Fed pursue? The additional consideration in a Biden presidency is that he will have to get his candidate through a Republican Senate. That perhaps might weigh on his mind and could perhaps be a point in favor of renominating Jay Powell. Do you think it's more likely than not that Powell keeps his job, Greg? Just don't know. There's too many uncertainties out there. <laughs> Fair enough. It's the early days to be asking you about that. So let's move on and talk about the decision that's coming up in just a couple of minutes uh, that has been like the least important thing on investors' minds today. Any surprises in store? We spoke with Julia Coronado top of the hour who said, look for them to kind of lay out uh, the QE plans that they may have into next year. I think that's what we're going to be looking for. Uh, I doubt we'll get it in the statement, but I think that the Q&A could be interesting in that regard. Look, our sense is that um, there's two things that have happened basically since the September meeting. The pandemic has got a lot worse, uh, and that means that perhaps we should be bracing for more lockdowns. But right now, that's not happening, and the economic data actually looks pretty good. So that, at one level, takes some pressure off the Fed. On the negative side, stimulus talks broke down. 
Uh, that said, uh, the Senate uh, leader, Mitch McConnell, does seem to be open to doing a deal during the lame duck, so maybe it's not all bad news there. If, in fact, we don't get any stimulus and if the um, economy starts to roll over because of what we're seeing on the pandemic, you're going to see increased pressure on the Fed to move. And those are the kinds of questions, the kind of contingent questions that I would like to hear Powell answer this afternoon. So two possibilities. You They could increase the volume of quantitative easing from $120 billion a month or one thing that I know a lot of folks on the street would like to see them do is change the mix of bonds they buy more towards the 10-year and longer duration, and that might have a, an outsized impact on the long end. I think the pushback you'll get, at least from some folks at the Fed, is what good would it do, given how low rates are, are right now? The consistent message from the Fed all along has been fiscal policy is so much more powerful right now. Right. And to that point, Greg, and finally, as Bill Dudley suggested in a piece this week, maybe it was last week, is the Fed out of bullets? I mean, are they getting all of this applause because they've done the very best that they can do? But if they had to do more, would they be able to help the economy? I think they are pretty much out of bullets. I mean, look, they've got interest rates at zero and they've said they will not go negative. They've got the long term uh, bond yield down below one percent. I mean, if they could get it to zero, what good would that do? They do have a few of the credit programs left over from the CARES Act, most importantly, the Main Street Lending Program, which has had very little take up. So in conjunction with the Treasury, you could see them easing the uh, terms for that. But the issue there really, the thing is lack of demand. So I just don't think there is uh, much that they can do. I don't expect Powell to say that. His last go around, he just kept talking about how many, how much, how powerful their guidance was and how many more tools they had yet. And I think as a Fed chairman, you kind of have to say that because you're not allowed to say there's nothing we can yeah. do. <laughs> but there's not a lot they can I, do. I, no, exactly. I think we all know that when he says, no, 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 we've got tons of options that you just not go, okay, all right, sure. If you say yeah, so. yeah, you're looking behind. I usually yeah, works, though. Looking. I don't see it. Yeah. Greg, thanks very much. Uh, appreciate it. Greg Ip with his thoughts on the Fed meeting coming up in thanks, just Kelly. a couple of minutes time. Meanwhile, as markets are on track for their best week since April now, best week since April, some 401k investors have been making more moves than usual this election week. Sharon Epperson is here with a closer look at their trading activity. What do we know, Sharon? Well, Kelly, what we know is this week, some long-term investors switched from their buy and hold strategy to save for retirement to more of a trader mindset. On the eve of the election, investment activity in 401k plans jumped to more than twice the normal daily average. That's according to 401k provider Alight Solutions. That accounted for about 0.06% of balances on November 2nd. And it's a small percentage, but a significant increase with money moving toward fixed income. It's something to keep your eye on, even though trading activity has been relatively normal election day and the day after. Whenever there's an, an event um, of uncertainty or volatility, people tend to trade because they, 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 they transfer their emotions to their 401k portfolio, and that's not usually a good thing. Look what happened four years ago. November 9th, 2016, the day after the presidential election, was a record breaker with 401k trading activity rising to nearly four and a half times the daily average, or 0.1% of balances. Money moved mostly to fixed income on that day, yet since that date, the S&P 500 has gained more than 60%, Kelly. And at least for the most part, people aren't, you know, trading these things day by day. Sharon, thank you very much. Sharon Epperson keeping part, an eye on yes, where the money is no. going and those accounts for us. That does it for The Exchange today, everybody. Now the Fed's rate decision is just moments away. Stay tuned. I'll join Tyler Matheson for Power Lunch and a whole lot more right after this quick break.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.